Well, good morning. As Paul said, my name is Jeremy. If you don't know me, I would love to have a chance to meet you if we have not met before. Uh, as Paul said, I'm one of the elders here. My primary uh, area of oversight is with our discipling groups and uh, some equipping aspects. If you have any questions about that, I encourage you to get in touch with me. I'm happy to talk to you about that. But as we get going, I invite you to stand with me as we look at God's Word and read God's Word together to 2 Peter chapter 1. Please follow along as I read. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no, pro no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to start off this morning by telling you the tale 
of two husbands. As young men, they both lived like you might observe many young men, full of themselves, always looking forward to spending time with their friends and the activities of a weekend. And along the course of time, these young men met young women who gained their attention and over time also gained their affection. Both of these men valued this new relationship so much that they sought the hand of this young woman who, to their delight, accepted their proposal. And both of these new husbands had a lot of learning to do. What they needed to learn most was that things were not as they used to be anymore. Though they were still in a relationship, they weren't in a new relationship, but they were in a new kind of relationship. And these new relationships had new commitments that they did not have before. Both of these men struggled with loosening ties with their past lives. They still liked to spend time on weekends with friends. They still liked to do lots of things as they had always done. One of these men kept the promises in mind that he had made on that wedding day, but the other did not seem to. Over the course of time, their marriages took very different paths. For the one in which the promises made were promises kept, the relationship grew in unity and in joy, even through times of difficulties. For the other, things seemed okay for a while, but things did not really grow, things did not really develop. The husband in this case still spent more time with friends than with his wife. He encouraged her to spend time with her friends, And when the two of them were together, things went along just fine. But those times were only really there as as part of a routine rather than anything meaningful. This latter husband, over time, grew discontent and unattached. And the reason for this is that he never really paid attention to the promises that he had made. He did not foster and cultivate a love for his bride, but settled for a loose familiarity. In time, this latter husband did not remember the commitment and the promises that he had made. And I probably don't need to tell you the rest of the story. Today, we're going to consider the importance of remembering and what it really means to remember. Those of you who are here this morning remembered when you got up that it's Sunday and that there was some place that you needed to be. If you're visiting with us, you remembered along some ways of how you found out about this place and the people here and how to get here. And the point of this small illustration is to point out that remembering something is not just recalling details. What you remembered this morning led to actions that brought you here today. Sometimes we need to remember things that have more long-term implications, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is one of those. If you're a member here, you have shown us that you remember the gospel. You can tell me the gospel. And we have seen in your life and in your decisions that you try to keep the gospel in mind as you do those things. So the question comes up, if you know it, why do you need to be reminded of it? Well, God's people have always been called to remember him and his promises in a way that leads to obedience. Those who have been called those who have been redeemed, those who have been sanctified, those who have been delivered from their former life, those who have, in other words, been saved, 
They are called to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. But we forget, don't we? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses reminds the people of the importance of God's word to them. The importance of his commands that he gave after he rescued them from Egypt. They're told that keeping God's command will be their wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples around them, a testimony to the greatness of God and a testimony to his glory and his goodness. So he tells them in Deuteronomy 4 and 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Not only are they to not forget what they've seen, but they must also not forget what they've been given. In Deuteronomy 4.23, he says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Even though God has sovereignly rescued them, and even though he has saved them and called them by his name, he warns them later in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. What I'm trying to say is this. It is because you have been redeemed, because you are saved, that you are to remember the Lord, to walk in his ways. You have been called by his name. And when he called you, you believed. When you believed, you received the Holy Spirit and were given a new heart. And by implication, you have been given a new identity. That identity is that you have become a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone around you. If you call yourself a Christian, if you have been baptized in his name, that is who you are. God's church, then is called to live in a way that represents him. You are called to an obedience to the gospel that Paul talks about in Romans 1 when he says that he is preaching the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is the kind of the obedience that we are called to that's summarized in the first part of 1 Peter that we looked at earlier this summer. Yet the reality we know is that sin still rages in our hearts, and it's waging a war against us. There are many times that we can say, just like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 7, when he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We know what is wrong, but we do it. In verse 19 of Romans 7, he says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Living in this reality should keep us from relying on ourselves in the things that we look at here in First or Second Peter, because sin always lies close at hand. It's with this in mind, too, that we need to remember that what we need for life and godliness is not from ourselves, but from God, and that our deliverance is in Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, as we sang this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we heard some big words, monergistic and synergistic. So I'll just remind you, because most people don't know these words, monergistic is the work of one and only one. And this is the word that we refer to of God doing the work of our salvation. We do not contribute to this work. We respond to it. 
Synergistic is done together, work that's done together. We work together with God as His Spirit works in us for our growth, for our sanctification, and our conformity to the image of Christ. And both of these truths need to be remembered. We cannot emphasize one more than another except for keeping them in their proper place. But the truth is that God worked in us first, and we respond by working with his help. He gives life, and then we live in him. Which brings us to our passage for this morning, verses 10 through 15 of 2 Peter 1. I'll read it again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now before I move on, one small point of translation I want to make. In verse 12, if you're reading the ESV, which is what I have, you will see that Peter intends to remind you of these qualities. Now other major translations like the New American Standard or the NIV say these things where the ESV says these qualities. And I'm going to I'm going to go along with this with these things. And that is why I'm here to tell you that you need to be reminded of all that God says about how to enter Christ's kingdom. So if you're taking notes, the main point for this morning is that entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus is for the diligent believer who remembers his calling in Christ. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus is for the diligent believer who remembers his calling in Christ. One more time. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus is for the diligent believer who remembers his calling in Christ. Our passage gives us four ways to be diligent to confirm your calling election. These four ways are, one, to remember the gospel. Two, to remember the warnings. Three, to remember the promises. And four, to remember that you need to be reminded. So first, remember the gospel. First, you must remember the gospel so that you can persevere and enter the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Peter commands the church to be diligent to confirm their calling and election in verse 10. And in these words, calling and election had the exhortation for a reason. They are a reminder of God's sovereign grace in their salvation. Now, these two words, calling and election, are referring to the one act of our justification. But there are two sides to this coin. Election is the act of God, the sovereign, monergistic act of God. Peter doesn't expand on it here as he most likely refers back to what, he's been given, what has been given to us by God's divine power. And it's possible that he's also even reminding them of what he had written in his first letter. So, for example, in 1 Peter 1, 
verses 3 through 5, he describes our salvation this way. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Salvation is God's work, as he says. He causes our new birth. He also wrote in verses 17 and 19, later in that same chapter, he, he says this as an exhortation. If you call on him who's fa as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing this, knowing this, that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited by your, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The election of God is referring to the new birth, which is granted solely by his mercy through the work of his son. God's election of us secures the inheritance because it is God's power to save. His election is our ransom, our freedom from the old man, freedom from our enslavement to sin, and this ransom was paid by the blood of Christ. It is the sovereign work of God. It is a monergistic work. Now, calling refers to both the outward and the inward call. Calling is distinct from election because you respond inwardly to the outward call by believing. This came to you through the presentation and preaching of the gospel. You did not stir up belief within yourself, but you responded to the external power of his call and repentance and belief. We can also call this a summons. It is a summons for you to forsake your old life and live in Christ, to live for his glory, and this is where the synergistic work proceeds from. Remembering who you are, who you have become through the mercy of God is the first thing you need to do to persevere in confident hope that entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus is being provided for you. Paul wrote of this importance in 2 Timothy 2.8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of, David, offspring of David as preached in my gospel. That command was given in the context of exhortations to endure suffering, to stay faithful, to be hardworking minister of the gospel. Something a little closer to, the, to what Peter was saying is in Romans 12.1 where Paul appeals to the brothers, uh, urges them, to present their bodies as living sacrifices. And he explains what that looks like with more detail than what we have here with Peter, but the foundation is the same. Peter refers to their calling and election, while Paul bases his commands on the mercies of God, mercies that are outlined in chapters 8 through 11 of Romans. So how do you remember your calling and election? It's been said over the past several weeks that you should be preaching the gospel to yourselves and this is true. You should be preaching the gospel to yourself. You should be reminding yourself of the work that God has done. But how did God's work, how did God's work of our salvation and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how did that have anything to do with you? And I think we sometimes forget to remind ourselves of what God has done in us to cause us to respond to him in faith. This may not be as easy to identify for some as others, especially 
if you were raised in a Christian home or grew up going to church and you were hearing the gospel regularly. But at some point, all of us have made a transition from being identified in Adam to being identified in Christ, from having a love for this world to having a love for Christ. My challenge to you is this. I want you to think about what ruled your heart before you believed. I want you to work to recollect what you loved, what you served, what you lived for. And then I want you to try to remember, to recall, where you found yourself loving Jesus Christ. Think about how all of a sudden your desires were changing for what God had presented of himself in Jesus Christ. How you desired to to grow in your knowledge of God, to, to know Christ, to hear his word, to be with his people. And then I want you to ask yourself, how did this happen? Did you just wake up one morning and decide to be a Christian? Did you just decide to believe? The faith that you began to share, a faith that began to possibly alienate you, a faith that possibly began to cost you, Did you just decide that following Christ one day was the best thing for you to do because it seemed like the right thing to do? Sometimes it may feel like that, but really, was it you? Or was it your responding to what God had done to awaken your heart to the truth of the gospel? Was it God who gave you life? The answer is yes. He's the one that gave you life. And remembering this, remembering that This is all beginning with God's work. This will help you continue to follow him because he's the one that rescued you, a sinner, who was rebelling against him in the first place. So just as you need to keep in mind your calling and election to remember that, to be diligent, to confirm it, you must also remember the kinds of warnings that he gives. Remembering the warnings will help you persevere and enter the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. There are many dangers that we face as believers, and Peter wants you to be ready for them. Last week, we looked at verses 8 and 9. In verse 9, Peter had just warned that those who lack the qualities that are outlined in verses 5 through 7, those who lacked these qualities are blind. They have, by their actions, been living as though they know nothing of the cleansing that they claimed in Christ. There are other warnings that we can see in other statements in this passage. For example, in verse 4, Peter mentions an escape from the corruption that is in this world, an escape from danger, implying there is a danger, there is an escape that has happened that we could have still been in and still go to. In In verse 10, in our passage this morning, the positive promise employs a negative statement. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, this implies the real possibility of a real fall. You may very well fall if you are not pursuing these things. And how does this come about? Well, the rest of Second Peter, especially chapter 2, gives some stark warnings about how such a fall may come. And the first is through the work of false teachers. So very briefly, looking at, at, at chapter 2, starting in verse 1, He says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. This is what they do, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of 
Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What we see here is that seductions to the flesh are going to come through false teachers. And because of that, the way of truth is blasphemed. We're, we're called to represent Christ and to bring glory to his name, but through our falling into these seductions, we dishonor the name of Christ. That's a real threat. The problem also, the threat of falling, is not just that false, false teachers will come, but that they will gain a following. You can see this in verses 18 through 19 of the enslaving power of sin, where he says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. All of this highlights the real danger of apostasy, the turning away from Christ Back to the world, which Peter warns of explicitly in verses 20 and 20, 20 to the 22 of chapter 2. He says, for if, for if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is a real danger that Peter presents to everyone sitting here today. The question comes up, though, how does this fit with election and the promised inheritance that is kept for you? And the confession of faith that we've adopted here at Trinity Church, every member here has affirmed it. These are the words that we find under an article on God's election. We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. It continues later, it says, it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. We also have in our confession an article on the perseverance of the saints. Where we read there, it says, we believe that all true believers endure to the end, and a special providence watches over their welfare, and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Strong statements about God's sovereignty. These truths come from passages like Romans 8.30, which show us that from predestination to glorification, it is all a work that God accomplishes. But we are also faced with passages that deal with people falling away, with the real danger of apostasy, warnings for doing so. The letter to the Hebrews has some of the clearest warnings. There are several warning passages that Hebrews, famous, Hebrews is famous for, but one that stands out to many is in chapter 6. You don't need to turn there, but listen carefully. He writes, for it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, right, their eyes have been opened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, that's an experience, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Now, this is not a warning about just sinning. It's a warning about turning away from Christ and essentially putting him to death, treating him as though he's still dead. 
Now, some people try to reconcile sovereign election and these warnings by saying that these warnings are just talking about people that aren't really believers. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to take this. The Bible gives us this tension because God wants us to rest our hope on Jesus Christ, to take seriously the salvation that he has given to us, to entrust ourselves to his sovereign work. But he also has revealed his commands so that we would know what it means to remain faithful. That is why in our confession on election, right after the affirmation of God's eternal purposes, it, it reads being Perfectly consistent with the free agency of man, election includes all the means in connection with the end of that salvation. Right? The scriptures are clear that God is sovereign and we are responsible. In our, in, uh, our article on perseverance, before mentioning God's special providence, it says this, their persevering attachment to Christ and to his people is the grand mark distinguishing them from false professors. So perseverance marks off those who are his. So the tension still exists. We have to live in that tension, but we have to understand our part in it, our responsibility in it. God gives warnings. We need to understand this. We, we get the warnings in Scripture as a means that God uses to keep us in the faith. I don't know... If many of you here are old enough to remember Mr. Yuck Stickers. If you don't know what Mr. Yuck Stickers were, the Department of Poison Control or the Poison Control Center, they sent out these stickers that were about the size of a quarter that had this green face, like a sick face, and its tongue was sticking out, and it got people's attention, right? It's like, yuck. Well, parents would put these on bottles uh, of like cleaners, bleach, or whatever underneath the cabinets so that kids would see that and, and realize it would not be a good idea for me to drink this. I think it was pretty effective. I, I never drank anything that had that sticker on it. <laughs> but just like Mr. Yuck is meant to keep your kids from drinking the poison in the bottle, these warning passages in Scripture are meant to keep us from the dangers of sliding into sin of sliding into rejection of Christ. So we need to pay attention to the warnings. We need to pay attention to the dangers and realize that those dangers are out there and they're thick. We need to read the warning signs and consider the damage and the death that can result. A decade ago, just 10 short years ago, Paul Tripp wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. It's a book that walks through the challenges and the pitfalls and the spiritual dangers that pastors can face. And it was endorsed by several contemporary pastors, five of which were highlighted on the back. Among those highlighted endorsements on the back, three of those men are no longer pastors of a church. One of them gave in to lust, had an affair, and was removed from ministry not just by one church but by two. Another one was, who was known for pursuing and preaching holiness. He became disillusioned by scandal in his own church, resigned as pastor, and a few years later completely walked away from the faith. Yet another one was a source of scandal himself, being the beneficiary of bribery and embezzlement, and just last year was arrested on assault charges. 
What's the common denominator? Well, the simple answer is the power of sin. But in the context of what we're looking at this summer, it was a failure to be diligent to practice the qualities that Peter calls us to, to heed the warnings as well. Now, these men were leaders. Of course, they should have known better, right? Well, yes and no. Every pastor, every leader in a church is a person on the road to sanctification just like every other member here. But their public failures serve as a warning to each and every one of you and me. You need to be aware, and I wonder if you are aware, of how quickly your foot could slip. Do you realize that because of the sinful nature in your heart that you are capable of walking out of here and committing any kind of sin? You need to be on guard. And as a little bit of an aside, this is not something that you're called to do on your own. We're often blind to our own sin, either through ignorance or willfully closing our eyes to it, but we need each other for this. You need other people who know you. You need other people to know you and have permission to speak into your life about what they see in you. And I think this is part of Peter's point as well. He's addressing the brothers, so you can see in verse 10, and every command and every you in this passage is plural. He's speaking to the church to do this together. So let this be a charge to you to open yourself up to the examination of others, not in a nitpicky way, but so that you can hear the warnings from others when they see sin creeping up on you and taking hold of you in your life. So just as we're to remember the gospel and the warnings of falling away, we also need to remember the promises. Remembering the promises will help you persevere in entering the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. The promise of the, of the gospel, of course, is the foundation for this, which we looked at earlier. But there's two other promises right here in verses 10 and 11 that we want to look at. Now, in the passage, what we see is the promise begins with an if, making it, it sound conditional. And it, it could be understood that way. It could also be understood as, as like the means of obtaining these promises. But in either case... The call is to practice the qualities. And it's important that we don't overlook this, that the promise is conditioned on practicing, on doing the good we're called to do. And we'll, we'll look at why in just a moment. But what I want to see here is that God has given you all that you need for life and godliness. But you need to make use of what he's given you. Peter's Greek could barely be more emphatic about how you will never fall. Most of the time, typically when we say something's not going to happen, we just have a single no, you know, not or no, just like in English. Uh, Greek does the same thing. When a, when a Greek speaker or author wants to make the no more certain, there are two no's, and to us it looks like a double negative, but it's emphasizing this is not going to happen. So an example uh, in Matthew 5 in verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that never is a double no. You will not ever type of uh, negative, double negative. Now, Peter, he does this. He has the two no's, but he also has an ever attached to it. So we could probably translate it like this. By practicing these qualities, you will not fall, not ever. That's the promise that he's making to you. You will be safer from apostasy 
in such a way that you can have confidence that God is continuing to work in you if you're practicing these qualities, and you will not fall. This, was, this does not mean you will never sin. It doesn't mean you won't backslide in some way. Peter is well aware of the power of sin because he himself denied the Lord Jesus and then he distanced himself from Gentiles, was rebuked by the Apostle Paul. Peter knows the power of sin. But what he's telling you is that you are not going to fall away if you're doing what you're called to do, if you're living out your identity. This is the promise that you're made to you if you're diligent to supplement your faith. The second promise is that entrance into the eternal kingdom will be provided for you. Now, Peter does a little wordplay here. It's not as clear in English, but I want to point this out. The word translated provided in verse 11 is the same word that translated as supplement in verse 5. So we're granted all things for life and godliness, right? That's God's work. We could think of it like this. God provides all that we need. We are called to make provision to our faith, which is like feeding it, exercising it through the qualities and disciplines that's, that are there. We work in harmony with him, living out what he has done for us. As we do this, God continues to make provision for our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. To be clear, we're not earning it, right? Rather, we're proving that we are citizens who are set to inherit it. Because the kingdom of God is for the citizens of God, the citizens of his kingdom. Many of Jesus' parables in Matthew address the kingdom of heaven. And from chapters 21 to 25, most of those parables have to do with who will enter the kingdom. And in each of these, Jesus is identifying who belongs by those who do the will of his Father. God's citizens will do the will of his Father because he has made them new creatures that that he is conforming into their image, into the image of his Son. God's citizens will do the will of the Father because they have a new identity that they have gotten through their new birth, an identity that they are living out. And God's citizens will do the will of their Father because they trust that He has called them to be His own. They remember the promises and they remember the work starts and continues through what God has done. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through, th- 9 through 13, Paul shares his prayer for the church there. And in this prayer, he says he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Through this knowledge, he prays for them to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him with virtuous lives. He prays for them to bear fruit, to increase in the knowledge of God, and he also prays for them to give thanks to God. And how does he describe who they're supposed to give thanks to? The Father, he says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints on light. God is the one who qualifies you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It is God's work. Does this sound familiar? I think Peter and Paul are beaten to the same tune here. Sometimes we like to make conditional promises to our children, such as if you clean your room, you can have some ice cream. Or maybe a promise is based on the quality of work. Like if you do a good job mowing the lawn, I'll take you and your friend to Silverwood next weekend. God's promises aren't quite like that. Instead, God has given you what you need to do as he commands. 
He has made promises to you that are based on what He has done for you and not on what you can do for Him. God has cleansed us, as we read. He's promised us the kingdom and His Son. He's cleansed us, but He's also given us His Holy Spirit who works in us so that we would pursue holiness. He's given us what we need, and we need to make use of it. So coming back to mowing the lawn, He's called us to do a good job of mowing the lawn, but He has also provided the lawnmower. He's sharpened the blade. He's put in a new spark plug. He's filled it with fresh gas, and He's even drawn the lines that we are to follow so that we make nice, clean lines in our, our lawn, right? Now, you just need to take what he's given you and use it. So are you trusting in God's promises? Do you trust that he is the one that's making you fit for his kingdom? Do you remember that Jesus is preparing a place for you that he will take you to be with himself? And in the meantime... You are to be living lives of holiness and godliness because he has given you his spirit to help you do so. As you think about this promise and the means of this promise, are you working diligently to supplement your faith with the virtues that we explored a few weeks ago? Are you relying on his promises to help you remember and to trust that he is the one doing this work in you? You can trust in his promise of forgiveness as you seek to conquer your own sin. You can trust in his promise to be with you as you face temptations and abandonment. You can trust in his promise to conform you into the image of his son as you seek to imitate him. And you can trust in his promise to love you as you seek to love one another. If you have not trusted in God's work, and if you have not placed your faith in the Son who's done all these things for you, I want you to know that even now the Lord is calling you. He has made every provision that you need to enter into his kingdom and enjoy eternal life with him. He's made every provision for you so that you would not ignore the warnings, that you would trust the promises and believe the good news that your sins are paid for. In order to be diligent and to confirm your calling and election, you need to remember the gospel. And you need to remember the warnings and you need to remember the promises, but you also need to remember that you need to be reminded of this. Peter wants you to know that you are going to need to be reminded of these things. Like I mentioned before, the ESV says, I always intend to remind you of these qualities in verse 12. But like I said, I believe the NIV and the NASB got it right when they say these things. He, the Greek does not have the word for qualities here. It's not in verse 8 or 10 either. The, um, the translators have provided the, what you're supposed to remember attached to the these um, to help us kind of track where that's going. And I'm convinced that what Peter is doing here is reminding the church of everything that he has said so far. As you can see from the rest of this section in verses 12 through 15, Peter is anticipating his death. So these are his last words. And he is making every effort so that you'll be able to recall what he has said so far. He did this very simply by writing it down, right? But what I want you to focus on here very briefly is that he was doing this even though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
Even though you probably know or possibly know everything that I have said this morning, you need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. We all do. We need to hear it again and again because we forget again and again. We are deceived by sin in our hearts and the lies of this world to forget. So we need to hear it and we need to hear it all. We need to hear reminders of the truth and the implications of those truths for all of our lives. Have you ever experienced something so magnificent that you'll never forget it? Some people like to talk about how they'll never forget when they got married or had their first child. These are nice and good and don't throw stuff at me here, but I'm thinking of something spectacular, right? Something extraordinary. Some people are blown away by natural wonders like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, and they're placed in awe because of just the grandeur of the whole thing. They may even be impacted by the fear that they may have felt of falling in to something like that. Other people are are impressed with the work of man, such as grand skyscrapers or Mount Rushmore and all of the work it took to do something like that. Other people are impacted by important events in history. Like for me, I feel... I still remember the shock of the first shooting at Columbine. Or when the Twin Towers fell on September 11th. Events and experiences, they can stir up our emotions, they cause us to remember, right? But sometimes those experiences and the emotions can be a lot easier to remember than the significance of those events. And there's a point of contact here with, with 9-11. The phrase, never forget, was plastered on billboards, signs, newscasts, newspapers, memorials all across the country. And for those who are alive to witness these things, even if on television, you probably won't forget the things that you saw. But what was behind the message of never forget? Are we really going to forget something like that? Never forget what? Well, the intended meaning was to never forget the unity that was felt and forged in the aftermath of that. And I probably don't need to tell you that that didn't last very long. Israel didn't forget their covenant with God, or excuse me, they didn't remember their covenant with God very long either. And the reality is, is we don't remember a lot of what we should remember. We don't remember who we are because we don't remember the dangers of sin and temptation, and we don't remember God's promises and the gospel in a way that impacts how we live. We know the facts, don't we? It's easy to recite the facts. Some of us know them very well, but are you remembering the facts in a way that leads you to practice godliness the godliness that you need? Are you remembering in a way that reminds you to love your spouse the way you should, to love your family the way you should? Are you remembering it in a way that impacts the way that you treat your boss that you don't like very much, or your employees that don't do very well, or your teachers or your parents, etc.? You name it. Are you making use of the scriptures to be reminded of these things? And are you reading his word 
with an eye to what Christ has accomplished for you. We all need to remember what God has done, and he has done marvelous, marvelous things for us. His grace is unbound and immeasurable towards us. And we need to remember that, but we also need to remember what he has called us to do, and you need to remind it of all that God says about how to enter Christ's kingdom, starting with the gospel and what he has called us to. Because entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus is for the diligent believer who remembers his calling in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise because you are a God who saves. And you have saved, you continue to save. And you have done all of this because of the love that you have for your son and the kingdom that you are preparing for him. You have made us citizens of your kingdom and of your son's kingdom by virtue of the work of your son and because it was your good pleasure to choose citizens for your kingdom. You have called us to live in a way that reflects our citizenship, that seeks to honor you in all of our lives. And we confess that we are quick to forget. And we prove that in the choices that we make. So I ask, even now, that you would help us to remember these things, to ingrain them on us, to etch your word, so to speak, in our hearts, that always steers us in a way that is living worthy of you. We thank you for the gospel that you indeed have cleansed us and are continuing to clean us and remind us that we are on a journey to glorification as we look ahead to the kingdom that you're preparing and that we will one day see you face to face. Let us live in light of these realities. In Christ's name we pray, amen.